want to start with a question, um, one that goes right to the heart of things. Are you happy? I love what Dr. Houston, uh, my teacher at Regent College, once said about happiness. He said, happiness is no laughing matter. It is the serious business of humankind. And he's right, of course. We all want to be happy. We spend our lives trying to get happy, even when we aren't conscious of it. Subconsciously, the drive for happiness is what's driving us. And so I ask you again, are, are you happy? Hold that question and we'll come back to it, but let's think for a second about a, a related question. What is it that makes a person happy? As I tried to pay attention to the, the messages in our culture about that, my sense is that it says in a million different way, happy are those who have, happy are those who have the right education and the right job, those who have the right income and the right home and the right car, happy are those who can attract the right partner, happy are those who can afford the latest mobile phone, wear the right aftershave, Happy are those with the biggest pensions who can go on the right holidays. That's the dream the advertisers are selling us. Happy are the wealthy, the powerful, those who can get what they want when they want it. Happy are those who have. In the opening lines of his Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus gathers his disciples around him and he begins to teach them the basics of life in the kingdom of God, he tells them something different. He moves the goalposts on what happiness is and on who can enjoy it. Before we dive into these very famous sayings, uh, we need to work out a couple of things. Each, each of the Beatitudes there uses the word blessed, so it's important that we know what that means. And we also want to know what Jesus is talking about, secondly, when he talks about the kingdom of God. Okay? So what does it mean to be blessed? The word translated here as blessed uh, would have been used in Greek uh, terminology, Greek literature, uh, for a person of good fortune. In Jewish circles, it's a very different worldview and it would have meant uh, a person who's deeply happy. Whenever Jesus talks about being blessed in these verses, he's talking about the deepest kind of inner joy, the kind of joy that when you find it, you, you feel lucky or fortunate or simply blessed. Sometimes you can't uh, define blessed in a better way than to say, I feel blessed. So with that short answer to our first question, let's come to that second question. What's Jesus talking about when he's talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? By the way, those two things are pretty, pretty much used interchangeably. This is going to need a slightly longer answer. And last week, I promised that we'd take a few moments to think about what, what's going on with the kingdom of God. Nobody has taught me more about the kingdom of God than Dallas Willard. Uh, at the moment, I'm rereading his 
uh, classic, the divine conspiracy. Uh, so much of what I'm going to share for the next few moments comes from him. Before we think about the kingdom of God, I want you to think for a moment about our kingdom or yours. You have a kingdom. Did you know that? Every one of us has a kingdom or a queendom, a realm that is uniquely ours, a place where we're in charge, where our choice determines what happens. So this is part of what it is to be a human being. Our kingdom is simply that area where our rule is effective. So to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, if I'm literally a king, then I rule over the land. That's my kingdom, the whole country. If I'm a school principal, my rule extends uh, over the whole school. If I'm a teacher, my rule is over my classroom. If I'm a parent, then I've, uh, I'm gonna say, well, maybe wishful thinking, my rule is over my home. And even if I'm none of these, my rule extends at least over my own person, myself. So we all have a kingdom. This is deeply biblical. This is how God created it, us to be. When God created us, he made us to rule, and he made us to have dominion, each one of us, over a limited sphere. Think about this for a second in case I'm, I'm losing you. This sense of having control over things, it's recognized as a vital factor in, in mental and physical health. So whenever people diminish what we can do or what we can have a say over, that feels abusive. It feels in the end like an attack on our personhood because we all have a kingdom. This is how we've been made. God created us to rule over the earth. We learned that last term when we studied together in the early chapters of Genesis. What we were meant to do was to exercise our rule as friends of God. We've been made to be his co-workers, to work with him in a creative enterprise of cultivating this beautiful planet. Sadly, as we also learned last term, we didn't do that. We didn't trust God. We moved away from him. So what's happened is that human beings have exercised their own rule apart from God with devastating effect. That whole sorry story of our fall, of our fall from grace is absolutely true, but it's not definitive. It's not the last word. Our fundamental makeup hasn't changed. You and I were created to rule. So now that we've thought about our kingdom, let's focus for a second on the kingdom of God. God's kingdom, like ours, is the area of his effective rule. God's kingdom, unlike ours, is vast. It extends over absolutely everything. It pervades and governs the whole of the physical universe. It's a place of order and of fullness, of beauty and of joy. If you want to get a feel for how wonderful the kingdom of God is, read the last six Psalms from 145 through to 150 sometime. A, a breathtaking celebration 
of life when God is king. The only parts of existence that aren't currently in the kingdom of God are the hearts of those who've chosen to live outside of Jesus Christ. Those who've chosen to stay in rebellion against God. God allows them to live beyond his rule, but only for some time. So we have a rule, and we've thought now about the kingdom of God. Now we're in a position to begin to understand what Jesus talks about when he comes and preaches and what's recorded for us in these early chapters in Matthew 5, but also previously in Matthew's gospel. When Jesus preached in Matthew 4, 17, have a, have a look, remind yourself. When he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, he's not telling us that God's kingdom has suddenly come into being. How could it be? God's always been king. His reign has always been over everything. What Jesus is telling us is that the kingdom has come in his coming, the kingdom's available now to us in a way that it never has been before. That's why Jesus' announcement of the kingdom was called a gospel. It was good news. It's news about the kingdom and how it's available to you. This is the best news ever. So what Jesus calls people to is to enter into a restored relationship with God, to integrate our rule back in with his rule, to mesh our little kingdoms back into his much greater kingdom. As I said last week, Jesus' invitation is nothing less than to live the life that is truly life. We've thought very briefly about what it is to be blessed. We've thought about, begun to think about what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of God. Let's, let's start to, to move now, will we? This passage, these Beatitudes. These eight short sayings, they make up a first lesson in what I'm calling Discipleship 101. It's a lesson full of surprises because Jesus tells us who can be happy and you'd never believe it, the kind of people who can find true happiness. Let's, let's read it and see. So who, according to Jesus, is happy in this deepest sense? Look at verse 3. The poor in spirit. Now there's a turn up for the books. Who exactly are the poor in spirit? There's a bit of confusion about this and a bit of debate over who exactly Jesus is talking about here. And it only adds to the confusion that in Luke's record of Jesus' teaching, he simply says, blessed are the poor. No mention of being poor in spirit. Having studied this passage, I'm convinced that the people Jesus is talking about here are actually poor. They're people who don't have much of what this world has to offer in terms of wealth and of power. Let me give you a couple of reasons why I believe that to be true. Firstly, 
In the Judaism of Jesus' time, the phrase poor in spirit and the phrase poor are used interchangeably. For a second clue, let's go to another part of Scripture. Flick with me to Isaiah chapter 61. It's a passage where we read about a a special season. It's called the year of the Lord's favor, a time when the Messiah would come uh, with with a, a beautiful movement among God's people. We're told there in verse 1 of Isaiah 61, the people to whom the Messiah will come, he's going to come to the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, and yes, the poor. The Messiah will proclaim good news to the poor. Keep your finger there because we're going to come back to that chapter uh, later on. Now, if this is the case, if Jesus is, it seems that Jesus is saying, you're deeply happy if you're poor. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make much sense to me. That's, that's not how I think of life. This is going to need some explaining. Maybe, maybe we can agree that you don't need to be super wealthy to be happy. You don't need to win the lottery to find joy. But, but to go as far as to say you're, you're happy if you're poor, That seems crazy. But let's read the whole verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. According to Jesus, the poor can be happy because they have the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) This still needs a bit more explaining, doesn't it? Why the poor? Why do they get the kingdom of heaven? Surely Jesus' offer is, is for all people. Yes, it is. Of course it is. But the particular point that Jesus is making here is that the kingdom's open to exactly the people who thought it was closed to them. The kingdom's for those who thought they'd been left out. In a world that tells you you're happy if you have, Jesus turns it on its head and he says, even if you have nothing, even if you're poor, you can be deeply happy. The happiest kind of person of all, you can find life in the kingdom of God. Folks, the truth is that the poor and the poor in spirit often are happier than the rich and powerful. Keep an eye on that as you're out and about. The people who are evidently wealthy, do a bit of field work, a bit of research, come back and tell me, do they look happier? If you're driving a Porsche and the traffic's slow, do you not feel more annoyed than the guy driving a banger? The truth is the poor in spirit and the poor are often happier than the rich and the powerful. Why is that? It's because they know they need God. When we're really poor, when we're without wealth and power, then we find ourselves driven to reliance on God. We're more open to receive those things that God would give us. Time and time again throughout Jesus' ministry, 
Those who accepted him were the poor, those without status. The wealthy and the powerful rejected him. The same, I think, may be true today. Eugene Peterson captures this well in the message translation. He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your tether. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Are you, are you feeling poor or poorly today? I've great news for you. You can be happy because you're welcome in the kingdom of God. To help us understand this second of Jesus' Beatitudes, flick back with me. Hopefully you have a still a finger in Isaiah 61. But this time, verse 2, the prophet's telling us about the year of the Lord's favor. He's promising what the Messiah is going to do. And he says that the, the promised Savior will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of the vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. Okay? Back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you see what's happening here? When Jesus preaches like this, he's saying that the time has now come. He has arrived. He's the Messiah that Isaiah was talking about hundreds of years earlier, and he's doing exactly what had been promised through the prophet, bringing comfort now to those who mourn. Why do people mourn? We mourn because we experience some huge loss or because our lives are broken. We're living with heartache and heartbreak. But now, says Jesus, we can be blessed, deeply and truly blessed, deeply and truly happy because a comforter has arrived. In Jesus, God has heard our cries. He's come among us and he's putting our broken lives back together. Notice the future tense. They will be comforted. God doesn't always, uh, when a person trusts in Jesus Christ, whisk them out of their difficult circumstances. Many of us here can testify to that. Often we have to be content in the knowledge that one day our, our wounds will be healed. One day our broken hearts will be mended. In the meantime, we hold fast the great promises of Scripture, promises like Revelation 21, that God will wipe every tear from our eyes, that there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We take God's word for it that one day he will make all things new. Maybe you're here this morning and your heart is broken. The weight of your circumstances is more than any one person should have to bear, and it's, it certainly feels like more than you're able to bear. Perhaps you've lost that one thing, that one person that you most held dear. Verse 
in the depths of your heart, you are mourning. If that's the case, says Jesus, then you're blessed. That's exactly the kind of situation I've come. Open your life to me. Let me be your comforter. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We're in a passage here where Jesus is telling us who can be happy. And it's made for surprising reading so far. It's the poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. Jesus says they can be happy. And in verse 5, he talks about the meek. That's not a word we use very much these days. It conjures up the image of somebody who's maybe quiet, a bit of a wallflower, somebody who's submissive, the kind of person who wouldn't say boo to a goose. Well, the word underlying the translation here is the same word that was translated poor in Isaiah 61. The meek that Jesus has in mind, it's not primarily those who shrink into the background or, or, or those who choose not to assert themselves. The meek are those who've been disenfranchised, who've been trampled upon and taken advantage of. Like these first two Beatitudes, we can trace this third one back to the Old Testament. Not, not Isaiah 61, but turn with me this time to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 it's a prayer that you would pray if you felt you were living among evil people who are getting the better of others. Look at verse 1. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. Scan down then to verse 11. The psalmist speaks of a time when God's going to remove evil tyrants and he's going to free those who've been oppressed. And the psalmist reassures us that in the end, the meek will inherit the land. Those who have been chased off their land by ruthless landlords will be invited back. And now in Matthew 5, Jesus practically quotes from Psalm 37. And he says, blessed are the meek for they'll inherit the land. Again, he's saying this great messianic prophecy in Psalm 37, the time has now come. So in a way, this beatitude's not very unlike the first one. The meek, they're in a desperate state. They've nowhere to turn but God. They're blessed because God is willing to vindicate them and he welcomes them into his kingdom. Look at that fourth of our Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These first four Beatitudes, they have a common thread running through them. And in some ways, they stand as a group on their own. And we're going to finish with this fourth one for today. 
If you've been following how we've understood the previous three, uh, you'll be in a better position to understand this fourth one. When Jesus talks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he is talking about people who are literally hungry. There's a literalness about this. They are poor, and, and their hunger is probably related to their poverty and, and their meek. They've been oppressed. They're struggling to put food on the table. For anyone who's uh, unsure that Jesus is talking about actual poverty, let me read the parallel passage in Luke's gospel. Blessed are you that hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Why, if he's talking about hunger, you might ask, is, is Jesus talking about them in terms of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Well, when he talks about their hunger or thirst for righteousness, he's not saying that they're longing to be holier people. I think that's how I intuitively understood this passage for many years. That's, that's a really important thing. God wants his people to be holy, but it's not what he's, Jesus is talking about here. These people hunger for righteousness because they're longing for right to be done. They're hungry for justice. Jesus is talking to the Jewish peasants of his day, the Galilean peasants driven off their land by the landlords. He's talking about the child slave in East Asia working for 14 hours a day in a sweatshop for 30p a day in wages. He's talking about the families of victims of the Hillsborough disaster. He's talking about those in Northern Ireland whose loved ones disappeared and those who lost loved ones are under a cloud of security force collusion. He's talking about the middle manager who's been unceremoniously dumped out of his job after 25 years of loyal service. Jesus is talking about people whose hearts are broken because of injustice. If this sounds strange to you, and it doesn't sit yet with your theology, then I'd encourage you to start reading or keep reading the Psalms. One thing that struck me the last time I read through them was just how many of them were Psalms of justice. People crying out to God that finally justice would be done. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Folks, the people we've met in these first four Beatitudes, the poor and the mourning, the meek and the downtrodden, they all have something in common. And this one thing that they have in common uniquely qualifies them for life in the kingdom of God. Do you know what it is? They're dissatisfied with life as it is. They're deeply unhappy with where they find themselves. They're hungry for more. They're longing for God to act. And the great news, the great news that Jesus brings is that their wait is now over. So I began this morning asking you whether you were happy. And I wondered how you answered it's possible that some of us find ourselves saying, no, I'm not. And I won't ever 
be truly happy. I'm too poor or too sad. I live my life in the the shadow of the strong and the successful. I, I don't have what it takes to be happy. We've talked today about the kingdom of God. Maybe you're on the back foot about about your life in the kingdom. That's for other people. It's not for you. It's for churchier people or for better people, uh, for people who haven't done what you've done and who aren't living the kind of life that you're living. I have good news for you. Good news. Gospel good news. Rather than me try to tell it, I'd love you to hear this gospel from Jesus himself. He says, if you're feeling low or grieving, if you've been oppressed or you're longing for justice, if your circumstances seem to disqualify you from joy and peace, then, even then, especially then, you can be happy. You can know the deepest joy of all because I've come and I'm inviting you into the kingdom of God. Come and find your true life in me, in the kingdom where I'm king. Folks, everything Jesus says in these Beatitudes, he says under the umbrella that was already introduced to us in chapter four, he says, when he talks about the kingdom, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn your life around, come from the outside and come in. So I ask you, are you entering the kingdom of God? Are you ready to be blessed? Deeply, deeply happy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming among us, for being the Word made flesh. We thank you, Lord, for this chance we've had this morning to to go back to your written word and to see what it was that you were saying when you were in the flesh. Thank you, Jesus, that you came not just to save us from sin and death, but that you've come now to invite us into life. Lord, I pray that each one of us would enter into your life. Lord, some of us have have been yours for a long time, but our view of life in the kingdom is small, much, much smaller than you'd have it to be. Lord, draw us further up and deeper in. Lord, some of us remain outside of your kingdom. We we still live uh, beyond your rule and reign. We still are uh, either trying to find a life of our own or, or not believing that your life is for us. Lord, be gracious with us. Draw us in that we too might find life in your kingdom. 
And Lord, we pray for each one of us that we'd learn more about this blessing that you made us for, this deep shalom, this joy. Help us to determine today no longer to live without it. We pray this in Jesus' name.